All right, back on the Young Turks. We got a great guest for you guys now. He's the mayor of New York and running for president, Bill de Blasio. Great to have you on the Young Turks, Mayor. Thanks very much, Cenk. Glad to be with you here from Gracie Mansion. All right, fantastic. Great to have a progressive in there. Um, it's been a long time coming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're running for president. You have interesting and very aggressive planks. Uh, we have a show here called Aggressive Progressive. You you could host it one day, uh, but. Uh, before we get to your planks, uh, I want to talk to you about New York because as I look at your um, ratings in New York, I'm perplexed. Um, crime is down, things seem, the economy is doing well, things seem generally fine. You won a crushing victory in just 2017 with 67% of the vote. No one really challenged you, uh, that's how strong you were. But yet, with white voters in New York, you're now pulling at 31%. Why don't white people in New York like you? Jenk, you know, I want to say, first of all, you learn a whole lot from elections that you don't learn from polls. And we've seen this over and over again. You know, when it mattered, uh, folks came out and supported me. 73% in uh, 2013, 67% in 2017. I I don't get the whole uh, critique that some are offering because I, I think most folks in elective office would die to have those kind of results in actual elections, not in polls, in actual elections. And the things I've done in New York, I think, are overwhelmingly popular item by item. You know, you're right, crime is down six years in a row, safest big city in America. We've repaired a lot of the rift between police and community with neighborhood policing. We have more jobs than we've ever had. We have pre-K for all our kids. I mean, there's a lot of really good stuff happening. There's, of course, there's huge challenges still, but something's off I always think when you know an individual poll shows a reality like that, that, and yet the election results show something very, very different. Yeah, and look, I don't want to do what the mainstream media does. I want to give you the full context because, all right, so that's white voters, thirty-three percent among Asian voters, forty-forty with Latino voters. But then when you get the black voters, sixty-six to twenty-three in your favor, almost three to one in your favor. So there's obviously a dynamic going on in your city, let alone the whole country. Where white people and black people are literally seeing the same exact events, but coming to completely different conclusions. So, what do you think drives that? Well, Jenk, it's the difference I've always found between when people get to experience something and and see it for themselves versus how it's interpreted for them. I mean, here there's plenty of uh, different outlets that give one view of things and don't necessarily show the whole picture. And so I'm not surprised people see a piece of the puzzle. But I have town hall meetings of over the years, I've had 65 town hall meetings around uh, this city. And you know, I, I like to say I represent 8.6 million highly opinionated people. And, <laughs> no, that's uh, true, that's definitely you know, true. That's true, so <laughs> but 65 town hall meetings. And what I have found is when I go over with people division, which is about fighting inequality, which is about treating all five boroughs equally and doing things, very bold, progressive things that haven't been done before, which is what we did with pre-K for all. It's what we did with two years of a rent freeze. You never saw that before in New York City. Uh, we're giving people lawyers for free to stop illegal evictions. There's all sorts of things we're doing that I think are really, really popular and get a lot of approval. I think, you know, it doesn't surprise me that when people hear about each specific thing, they feel very good about it. Yeah. Uh, so this is always the challenge of how to get the message out, how to get the word out. 
in a world where the flow of information isn't always so consistent. Yeah. But look, Jenk, the in running for president, uh, I'm not talking to people about what was my latest poll number in New York. I'm talking about what I did. And the fact that there's a lot of, you know, there are some good progressives in the field, undoubtedly, and people I respect a lot. But the question will always be, as progressives, we got to get things done for people who can show they actually know how to do it. And they've done it. I've done it in the nation's biggest city consistently now for six years. and It's actually working. Yeah. And, and that's the important part. So look, a lot of the more um, conservative Democrats, let's put it that way in the race, in the presidential race, brag about how they think got things done in, in their home states. But the things they got done is are not particularly progressive. So John Hickenlooper fracked the hell out of Colorado, but I'm not overly impressed by that. I mean, every corporate interest wanted him to do that. So that was a bit of a layup. So you got $15 minimum wage passed. But then people would say, those same more conservative Democrats would say, look, it's easier to get a pass in New York, but you know, the people in the red states don't want them. I'm dying to answer that question for you. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to answer it. We both want to answer, Jenk. <laughs> okay. So, so when $15 minimum wage started being put forward as an idea, I remember vividly a lot of mainstream Democrats headed for the hills as well as Republicans. A lot of Democrats said, oh, no, no, that's too much. That's unreasonable. That can never pass. And I'm very proud to say I was at some of the earliest demonstrations in favor of the $15 minimum wage. And I believed it was necessary for New York. I think it's necessary for the whole country. And uh, you know, and the business community fought it very hard uh, and said the sky would fall and we would lose jobs. And of course, you know the moral of the story, Jenk. The opposite happens when you give people a higher minimum wage. They actually spend the money and it creates jobs. So no, I had to deal with a lot of opposition. In fact, the city of New York went ahead. We gave the $15 minimum wage to city workers and to nonprofits that the city contracted with, which is ultimately hundreds of thousands of people. And that really helped to create the momentum to get it done in the whole state of New York. Uh, so everything I've done, I mentioned that rent freeze, I got huge opposition from the landlord lobby. They took us to court, they tried to beat, beat us, we beat them two years in a row. By law, I was able to enforce a rent freeze for folks who lived in rent regulated apartments. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of things I've done. We create a, a law requiring developers to have to build affordable housing. If yeah. they need a permit from the city for their development project, they had to provide between 20 and 30% affordable units. They had to build them, they had to pay for them. That was a law. Obviously, a lot of them did not want that. We got that law passed. I mean, you don't make progressive change without confronting opposition. And obviously, one of the biggest examples is on stop and frisk. When I Ran for mayor, I said we were going to end the broken, divisive policy of stop and frisk. Uh, I had the, the current mayor at the time saying that you know there would be crime and chaos. The, the current police commissioner before I took office saying there'd be crime and chaos. Uh, several of the newspaper editorial boards, you know, I had huge opposition, but I knew if we stopped uh, doing something punitive and unnecessary and negative, particularly towards young men of color, we could actually not only be safe, but have a much fairer city. And lo and behold, we got rid of stop and frisk. And for six years in a row, the city has gotten safer. Yeah, no, look, they live in a fact-free zone. So on the minimum wage, uh, both Missouri and Arkansas, very red states, voted overwhelmingly in ballot measures to increase the minimum wage. So I don't know what they mean that red, oh, people in red states don't want to get paid more. That's preposterous. It's the dumbest thing hey. I've ever heard. 
Shank, you know, you you are a keen judge of the uh, kind of mainstream discourse. You know, it never surprises me when a huge fact like the one you just put forward somehow gets left out of the dialogue. Yeah, everyone who says, oh, you know, there's gonna be so much opposition to $15 minimum wage and oh, it's a liberal thing and it's a coastal thing. Yeah, how about that referendum in Missouri? <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. There are so many obvious examples that working people everywhere want change. They don't think the country's fair for them. And they want change, red states, blue states, purple states. And yet there's this mainstream narrative that says, oh, it's this fringe movement. No, it's not fringe. Working people have wanted justice for a long time. And if we as Democrats talk about putting working people first, which is the whole theme of my campaign, words, three simple words, working people first. That's a message that works in every state in this country. Yeah, and well, that goes to the point that I wanna bring up next about other Democrats. Because when you appeal to African Americans in New York, uh, and there are more uh, black voters in New York than there are people who work in Wall Street. They find that to be illegitimate. They consider that in in maybe both sense of the word, base politics. Um, what's wrong with appealing to African Americans? What's wrong with appealing to uh, to more voters? So, but now look, that's an easy question, but that's not the one I'm asking. The one I'm asking is other Democrats, because it's not just Republicans. Democrats find that to be illegitimate and think that going populist is some sort of crass political maneuver. So, how do you deal with people like that in your own party? Jenk, as usual, you're getting to the heart of the matter, which I appreciate a lot. First of all, let's reclaim the word populist. Um, there are certain circles in New York that I've uh, had meetings with where you know the word populist has now been reserved just for you know right-wing movements in Europe. That's absolutely not fair. That's not right. There is a horrible kind of right-wing populism which we see in Europe and we see with uh, Donald Trump. But I remind people that populism as a broader concept uh, has tremendous positive progressive roots in history. And what I think of is progressive populism is talking about people's lives, talking about the kinds of bold change that they want. And you know what, I get sick to my stomach when Democrats are scared to be populists and scared to be progressives because the history says for decades and decades, the Democratic Party did amazing good for everyday Americans and had tremendous support when it was a populist party with a populist economic message. And by the way, I've talked to folks a lot, I've been in Iowa a lot recently and talking to folks about the fact that Democrats used to have a rural urban coalition, a black white coalition, a north, south, east, west coalition, because they weren't afraid to be progressive populists and talk about economics in a straightforward way. What Roosevelt did with you know, securing and strengthening the rights of labor, giving people a, a real safety net in their lives, social security, you know, creating public jobs so folks had an income. I mean, these things built not just one generation, multi-generational loyalty to the Democratic Party. And yet the orthodoxy in so much of the party, even now, is we should be scared of talking about that kind of thing. So, you know, I go the other way. You know, I talk vividly about the rights of labor, the need to be the party of labor unions again. I have a 21st century working people's bill of rights, which I want to tell you about and I hope we'll get to talk about, which is yeah. something that really exemplifies all the things that we should be doing for working people. If we expect them to care, and we expect them to come out and vote. 
Uh, I'm calling for the most aggressive approach to taxing the wealthy, uh, which is something, by the way, again, talk about something that people appreciate across the board. It's not just a majority of Democrats who want higher taxes on the wealthy. Uh, a very high percentage of independents Republicans want it too, because they're working people. Yeah. And, and so the whole conversation, when you talk about working people, a lot of folks in the elite find it distasteful and off-putting. Yeah. You know, and that involves, and that often involves the Democratic elite as well. So let's talk about that, that. It, because, right? Because it's relatively easy to uh, go after uh, Democrats you're literally running against uh, as a presidential candidate, but if you're president, it'll be harder uh, to challenge your own party. And so, for example, Nancy Pelosi held up a $15 minimum wage in the House because six conservative Democrats didn't want it. She held it up for six months. Uh, minor miracle, they finally got to it and, and passed it, even though it was supposed to be in the first 100 hours that they did that. Uh, and when you go to pass Medicare for all, which I know you're in favor of, you've signed the progressive pledge and, uh, and, and Green New Deal and $15 minimum wage, you will not be blocked by just Republicans, and that's relatively easier to deal with. You'll be blocked by fellow Democrats. So if you're president, what are you gonna do to deal with those Democrats who are on the other side? First of all, Jenk, thank you for putting together the pledge because it really epitomizes what it is to be a progressive today. And um, I'm glad you put it out there and I would urge all Democrat candidates to sign it because it really will say very simply, very sharply who we are and why we're different, which is what people ultimately wanna know. Are we actually gonna be different than the Republicans? Are we actually gonna do something that changes their lives for the better? Your pledge makes clear how and why we do that. Uh, but you're right, it, of course this means taking on elements in the Democratic Party too. And I'll tell you, I did that right here. So as with so many things that you and I talk about, I will be able to tell you, these are not just words, these are not just policy papers. I'm telling you things I've already done, things I've proven can be done. So when I ran, I think you'll enjoy this because you famously, Jank, were one of the very few people uh, pretty early on to predict my victory in the 2013 mayor's race. And I wanna use it as an example. I had the entire business community against me, the real estate community against me, all the party apparatuses of the five boroughs against me, all the major editorial boards against me, the major newspapers. I have to say, I had some of the labor movement, but by far a minority of the labor movement uh, and very, very few elected officials. And I won the Democratic primary outright without a runoff uh, in the biggest city in the country. And I, I don't think it's, I'm not trying to tell you I'm so special. I'm telling you the, what I was saying was important, I think, and heartfelt. And it was about challenging the orthodoxy and not going along with what a lot of mainstream Democrats were saying. A lot of mainstream Democrats were, were really afraid to take on the powers that be. And I talked about taxing the wealthy. There were plenty of Democrats who were not willing to say that. That's what I originally wanted to do to get to pre-K for all. We ended up getting it done a different way, but my original vision was a tax on the wealthy. So we have pre-K for every child. I talked about paid sick leave for working people didn't have it and ending stop and frisk. And a lot of Democrats were not willing to take those bold positions. And guess what? The person who took the bold position ended up winning. Yeah. So we see yeah. this and, and you know, this has been true in a lot of elections all over this country. I, I really do believe this is the new politics of America. This is the post great recession political reality uh, that progressives, who are bold and populist in the best sense of the word, uh, are in a tremendous position to win people's 
uh, support because it's speaking to a broken reality and not accepting a broken status quo. Yeah, And too many other Democrats who are playing, living off the playbook from the past. I mean, Jenk, it's become clear for years. The old playbook doesn't work anymore because it's not valid to people. Their lives have changed. They know it. You know, I have a simple thing I say. America's not working for working people. And yeah. they know it. Yeah, the, the reason I predict that you would win when you were in third or fourth place is because you were running against big business and uh, all of the elite and, and the wealthy, etc. I don't know why Democrats can't do math. Uh, there are more poor and middle class people in this country than wealthy people. But the reality is, I do know why. Because uh, they can do the other kind of math where they're gonna get donations from the wealthy, and that's called corruption. And so if you let go of the corruption, you can actually win elections. Uh, <laughs> but apparently, uh, the Democratic Party has not caught on to that. But that leads me to your tax uh, plan. It's taxthehell.com, right? Uh, it's I, yeah, Jenk. I want to urge everyone to go to taxthehell.com okay. and see this plan, which I clearly have. I said this on the national debate stage to you know several tens of millions of people, and by saying that, I'm making quite clear I am not chasing after high donors when my message is tax the hell out of the wealthy, and it's not disrespect for people who have done well. It's just an acknowledgement. For 40 years, middle class people, working class people have been stuck in this country, not moving forward. Uh, not doing better economically. And in that same 40 years from Reagan till today, uh, the rich have literally gotten richer and richer and paid less and less in taxes. So when I say tax the hell.com, it's not a statement of anger. It's a statement of fairness. It's time to even things up. And if we're gonna be able to invest in our country, we need the kind of tax levels we had long ago. And so this plan's really aggressive. And I think it gets to the point you're making. When everyday Americans see you're willing to take on the wealthy, and there go a bunch of campaign donations, that's when they know you're real. Yeah, that certainly gives you an indication that you have not been corrupted. Um, because there aren't a lot of wealthy donors that are like, yeah, tax the hell out of me. Um, so uh, they, they're not gonna be big backers of a website called taxthehell.com, uh, which I have to confess is uh, one of the more amusing titles uh, for a political website I've heard. Uh, but when you get to the, the heart of the plan, uh, no, the wealthy are not going to find it amusing. So uh, some critics, and I'm amused by that as well, uh, say it's a smorgasbord of, of uh, tax increases. So can you tell us what's on that poo-poo platter? Yes, <laughs> I like the way you mixed your metaphors there. <laughs> it's an anti-pasto of progressive change. <laughs> That's more New York, that, there you go. I thought you'd like that, staying true to my, my ancestry here. Yeah. Um, Okay, first of all, let's talk about the tax level for the wealthy. Uh, I believe, let's start at the beginning, repeal the Trump tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations, uh, restore state and tax, uh, state and local tax deductibility, which was part of this country for over 100 years, I think is the right thing to do. Uh, and then institute the tax levels for the wealthy uh, that existed during the time of the radical socialist Dwight D. Eisenhower. So approximately 70% is the number in my plan for folks who make over $2 million. And uh, other elements of the plan, I think there should be uh, a wealth tax on assets. There should be uh, a modest, but still it would add up a lot, stock transfer tax. There should be a tax that penalizes corporations that have their CEO income pegged at over 100 times 
the salary of an average worker or the wages of an average worker. And the higher that CEO income goes, the more there should be an additional tax. Because it all comes back to the same reality, Jenk. Uh, there was a time in this country, I'm not saying it was a perfect time, but it was a better time when CEOs made a whole lot less, uh, working people proportionally made a whole lot more. Uh, this country had resources to invest. And so what did America do? Invested in infrastructure, public schools, higher education, science, research. And what did that do? It, it created a much stronger economy for the long haul. Right now, we're in a country that maybe on paper, the economic statistics are good, but how much longer can that be true since we're absolutely not addressing our infrastructure? And I'm talking about this as mayor of the nation's largest city and an older city where the infrastructure is deeply stressed. It's not being addressed by the federal government. There's no plan to stop global warming right now in Washington. There's no resiliency plan. Do you think the American economy is gonna thrive and American companies are gonna do well and people are gonna have great incomes as our infrastructure crumbles and we don't deal with the effects of climate change? I mean, come on. So I believe it's not only a matter of tax justice that the wealthy should pay a whole lot more because they got wealthy with the help of the federal government. I mean, this is the point I make and I think everyday Americans get this. It wasn't a level playing field. You and I and, and working people didn't get a big hand every step along the way, but wealthy people had all sorts of federal policies that helped them get more and more wealthy. Time to give back, time to get things to be fair again. And because that would then allow for some resources to be spent on the things that actually would strengthen us as a country, we could have a sustainable reality going forward, both environmentally and economically. But right now, I mean, come on, this is a very dangerous reality in this country because we're not addressing our core problems and how much inequality before a society starts to fall apart. I mean, this is a blunt question you know, that needs to be talked about. This is a level of inequality. Last time we saw it was the 1920s. And if it continues to grow, this is what destabilizes a country when people feel they don't belong anymore. They're not getting anything out of it. It's not their country too. It belongs to a small group of people. That's the danger if we keep going in this direction. So I should be biased against one of your proposals because I'm the CEO of the Young Turks. So you're saying more taxes once I make more than 100 times the average employee. Meanwhile, I was doing the math on it as you were talking and I was thinking, oh my God, making 100 times the average employee here, that would be so great. Yeah, <laughs> really? that's a monstrous I, number. Right? I have a pretty good sense of like the values of your employees. I think I think if you got anywhere near a hundred times their their wages and salaries, there'd probably be an open rebellion, and yeah. you'd be off the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, that'd be great for everybody, but we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere, nowhere, nowhere near that. And that's the reason I bring that up is to give the audience a sense of. It's not normal for CEOs to make three, 400 times their average worker. It's not historically normal. That isn't what made America great. That wasn't what the rates were when, when America was a number one economy and prospering and really growing in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, last uh, policy thing here, um, you mentioned the Bill of Rights there. So you're obviously, you're not taxing people out of punitive uh, sense. You mentioned some of the things that you work on, but the point I assume is to so that the workers will have that Bill of Rights. So what's in the Bill of Rights? So the Bill of Rights gets to really central things we need. You know, one of the really uh, tough moments, I think sad moments is in 2009, 
Democrats were staring at the opportunity to pass the Employee Free Choice Act in the Congress that would have secured the rights of labor, would have made it a much easier for labor to organize going forward. And it, and it could have actually invigorated not only labor, but the bigger progressive movement. We missed that opportunity a decade ago. When I'm president, we're not gonna miss. One of the first things I would do is pass this 21st century working people's bill of rights. So in terms of labor, card check neutrality, protecting the rights of labor unions to organize, stopping companies from intimidating uh, their employees if they're interested in joining a union. And then things that broaden the rights of working people in general, for example, just cause. Jenk, uh, in this country, in so many places, you can be fired from a company for absolutely no reason whatsoever. You can be fired for your political views, for the way you look, for the way you, your hair looks. You can be fired because of who you love. There's nothing that stops it. I want federal legislation that says you can only be fired for just cause and there has to be due process. How about another key piece, people in the gig economy uh, who don't have any protections in a lot of this country. Here in New York, we just passed some important uh, new rules for folks who drive uh, for higher vehicles to give them a minimum wage and to protect them. But you know, most of the country, that's not true. There should be federal rules, federal law that uh, protects folks in the gig economy, gives them minimum wage, gives them uh, benefits that are portable. I mean, there's so many things that we have to do in this country to actually respect working people and, and strengthen their hand again. Right. Um, so I think everything you just heard I mean, Cenk, you're an objective observer. Don't you think that there are millions and millions of people, including all the folks in labor right now who feel embattled, millions of Americans, all the folks who would like to have a labor union, all the folks who feel that they're working in places where their, their rights are not being respected, uh, all the folks in the gig economy. I mean, this is the kind of platform that could move you know, millions of people to get involved and to vote who right now often feel you know, ignored and left out. And that's what the Democratic Party should be about. Look, you know, we're very honest about our perspective here, the Young Turks who call ourselves home progressives. But I'm objective in the sense that unlike many other Democrats and pundits, apparently I can do math. And there are more workers in the country than bosses. That math is not complicated. So if you'd like to win elections and serve the majority of people in a democracy, which is the whole point of a democracy, yes, you would go in that direction. Last two questions are what I ask almost everybody, and they're regarding the race. If you if you win the nomination, do you have a sense of who would be your vice president? So let me say one thing about the race before answering that question, which is your viewers, real progressives. I think we would all agree we need as many progressive voices out there, pounding away, fighting for the kinds of ideas I'm talking about here. And I ask your viewers, of course, go to taxthehell.com, learn about my plans. And you can also go to buildablasio.com. And please help me out because to get on that debate stage and stay on that debate stage, the rules today, which in some ways are more democratic with a small d, uh, really uh, put a premium on those low dollar donations, those everyday people who, who donate even just $1. So if you wanna keep a pro-labor voice on that stage, progressive ideas on that stage, in this battle for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, and it's playing out vividly on that debate stage, and I am fighting for working people, I'm fighting for labor unions, Please donate $1 or more at buildablasio.com and help me keep my voice in this mix. Plenty of other voices will take care of the mainstream. If you're worried about whether the mainstream will be represented, I assure you, you have nothing to worry about. But progressive voices, we need as many as we can get. So I wanna ask that of your viewers. And then in terms of vice president, I'm not pretentious enough 
as someone, you know, fighting and certainly as an underdog fighting for the nomination to name any names. But I'll tell you one thing that I think any nominee should do. And I believe in this. You know, I'm a progressive. If I had uh, the privilege of being the nominee of this party, I would choose a fellow progressive. I would choose someone who wanted to achieve the exact same kind of things and stood for the same things. Because, you know, we've learned so many times in history, the, the running mate oftentimes ends up in charge. And this is a vision that to me is pretty sacred that we return this country to working people. So if I had that opportunity, I would choose someone who is a strong, consistent pro-labor progressive. Uh, and we're gonna put up the uh, the website and the links as we always do, uh, builddeblasio.com. But guys, if you're watching this later on YouTube, Facebook, all of our platforms, the links will be down below so you can just click on them, it's really easy. Uh, and that leads to the final question. So uh, we, we've now uh, mentioned a couple of times how aggressive you are and in the debates that was very, very clear. Uh, and so if one of the leading candidates were to pick you as vice president, how aggressive would you be against Donald Trump? Uh, would you be the attack dog? Would it be TrumpTheHell.com? Hey man, I'm ready. <laughs> Look, I'm running for president uh, and if I'm the presidential nominee, uh, I'm gonna challenge Donald Trump toe to toe. And look, this is an important issue. Who can get up on that stage for those three crucial debates uh, in the fall of 2020 and take this guy on and not fall for his games and his tricks and his bait and switch and challenge him every step of the way. Donald Trump has lied to working people. He lied to them overtly. He said he would be on their side. He created the cabinet of the millionaires and billionaires and gave the biggest tax giveaway to the wealthy and corporations in a generation. And that is the Achilles heel. All those good working folks who were sick of what they saw as a government that didn't function and parties that didn't represent them. And they said, hey, let's shake it up. And then they've been royally screwed by Donald Trump. And the nominee of this party has to take it to Trump, not only on the debate stage, but throughout, he is a classic bully. He doesn't know what to do when people confront him and are unafraid of him and are willing to go toe to toe. So I would do that as a presidential nominee. And if there's another nominee, I will fight with all I got for that nominee. And I'll challenge Trump, Pence, everyone, because they look, they've got a glass jaw, Jank. They really do. They lied overtly and they can't even pretend. They can't pretend they are doing anything to give people health care. The only thing they've done is try and take it away. They can't pretend that they've raised, you know, for everyday people, raised wages and benefits in any kind of lasting way. They can't pretend they've taken on the wealthy or corporate America. They've got so many areas where they're vulnerable. And I think Democrats and sitting progressives are sitting on top of a golden opportunity, but we have to be aggressive and unafraid and unapologetic. And so, this is the time to do it. So if the situation went that way and you were offered, uh, I take it, it sounds like the answer is a yes for the vice presidency. Well, again, I don't do hypotheticals, even if they're friendly hypotheticals, I'm running for president. This is, Jenk, I think we could agree intensely on something. American politics today is probably the most unpredictable we've seen in generations. No one, I, I mean, very, very few people actually thought Donald Trump was gonna be president. Very few people saw the intensity of Bernie's 2016 campaign coming. Very few people thought I was gonna be elected mayor in New York City. Uh, very few people understood that what Occupy Wall Street meant and then the impact it would have. You can, I can go down the list. We're in an incredible, unpredictable time. 
that's also a time that's filled with possibilities. So I'm running for president because I've run the nation's largest city. I've made you know really bold progressive change. I know how to do it. And I could bring a lot to the people of this country based on what I've done here. If it goes in a different direction, you know, I'm gonna say what I think all of my colleagues in this race would say. If we are not the nominee, if I'm not the nominee, I think my colleagues would say the same thing. I'll fight like hell, I'll work my ass off for anyone who is the nominee. Uh, and I'll certainly challenge Trump and Pence no matter what my role is. Yeah, and I will double down that uh, the more progressive fighters there are in the race, the better for progressive side overall. Mayor Bill de Blasio, Mayor of New York, thank you so much for joining us on the Young Turks, really appreciate it. Great to see you, Cenk, you take care. All right, you too. All right, uh, when we come back, we've got the last half hour of the Young Turks for you guys that are members. Uh, tyt.com slash join to become a member. Uh, we're gonna talk to Steve O, he's uh, one of our own here. And if the Trump Cuccinelli rule was in effect, he would not have been allowed to become a citizen. Uh, he is one of the original aggressive progressives and he'll get quite aggressive about that. And then I was in the last episode of the Showtime show about Roger Ailes. We'll show you that and I'll tell you why I'm proud of that when we return.